Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you in the last week have started a new task and then not finished it. Um, how, how many of us are honest to admit that there are things that we started to do this week uh, that we never actually got done? Maybe it's the case that you started to reply to a very important email or message, and if you're anything like me, you'll have half a dozen draft emails still, uh, still left in your drafts folder, or you'll start to do some other task, and then you get distracted, and then two weeks later, people are sort of questioning you as to why it's not been done yet. Or maybe you're the sort of person who, who loves reading or, or pretends that you love reading. Uh, and, and you start a book and you get roughly halfway through, if that, uh, and then you never quite finish it. And then you start reading a different book about two months later and you forget about the other, the other book that you started. We've all done it. We've all been there. We've all started tasks that we, we have a genuine intention to finish. And then we just simply never get around to it. And today, we're going to start to look at the book of Philippians. And here in this letter, the Apostle Paul is either in prison or under house arrest. He's in chains for preaching the gospel. And terrifyingly, there's actually no guarantee at this point that he'll ever be allowed out. There's no clarity. It may even be the case here that he'll be executed for the crime of preaching the gospel, for the crime of, crime of declaring that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. But while he's in chains, he has a, has a visit from a chap called Epaphroditus from the church in Philippi, a church very close to Paul's heart. And he's presented Paul with a financial gift. He's presented Paul with a gift and he's updated him on the work of the church in Philippi. And after receiving this update under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul pens this letter to the Philippian church and unlike perhaps you might think he's not dejected he's not cast down he's not sitting there feeling sorry for himself no he's actually full of joy and that is very much one of the central themes of the entirety of this letter you'll see that thread throughout the book of philippians the central theme of having joy and rejoicing but today, as Paul often does when he starts his letters to churches, he starts off by seeking to encourage the believers in this church. And he does that in a very unique way. We've already reminded ourselves of how often we forget to finish tasks and how prone we are, at leave, uh, prone we are to, to leave things half done. Well, here Paul encourages the Philippian church by telling them of, of, telling them of a God who never leaves a job half done. Our God is so great and so big and so powerful that he always completes the tasks that he sets out to do. We see that, first of all, right at the beginning of Genesis, right at the heart of creation. He creates, he makes all things, and then he rests and says, it is good. And that is what he says uh, to all of us. If you're a Christian this morning, the only reason that you are a Christian is because God has started a similarly good work in your life and promises to finish it. Amen. The work, as we've just sung, the work that his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. And the Apostle Paul is reminding his readers of this. He is reminding the Philippian church of this. So look at verse 6. Being confident 
of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here Paul is encouraging the Philippians and is now encouraging us with a reminder of that great doctrine that theologians call the perseverance of the saints. It's a very important phrase, the perseverance of the saints. This knowledge, this theological concept that all who trust in God, all who are rescued by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ are eternally secure and persevere to the very end. Verse 6 again, uh, right at the end. A good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until the day of Christ Jesus. You see this concept also expressed, uh, the day of Christ Jesus being a really important uh, point here. You see it there also right at the end of verse verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ He is the central person of this letter. And right at the beginning, he gets that that message across. He is reminding his readers that there is a day when Jesus Christ is coming back. And there is a day where all will face him. And for those who are believers, that is a great encouragement. That is a great and wonderful reminder for us to explore the ways in which Paul encourages the believers in, in, in Philippi and it therefore encourages us, I want you to notice three things that he does, or three words really, that he highlights to the Philippian church. The first one is a partnership. The second one is perseverance. And thirdly and finally, it will be his prayers for them. So PPP, partnership, perseverance, prayers. So let's notice firstly the partnership. This is seen primarily in verses 3 to verse 5. But look with me, uh, particularly at verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that word fellowship is something that we're all very familiar with, but it could equally be translated partnership. It's this, this concept that we are working together. We are completely united. We are, in, in, in a sense, a one body And Paul recognises that this partnership is a good one, it is a solid one, and he highlights and talks about his very, very high opinion of the Philippian church. Look at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. His immediate reaction when he thinks of this church is one of total gratitude. So the, the partnership they have, you might want to note this down, is a grateful partnership. A grateful partnership. Do you know anyone like that in your life? Is there anyone who as soon as, as soon as they come to your mind or as soon as you see them and, and meet with them, your instant reaction is to turn to God in worship, praise and thanksgiving. Those friends who encourage you, those friends who uplift you, those friends who laugh and cry with you. And how about in the church? How about in the church? Are there people in the church who, when you see them and you meet with them, your immediate reaction is to turn to God in praise and thanksgiving because of the way they have blessed you? Is your attitude towards the church, both locally here and more universally, more broadly, one of total appreciation and thanksgiving to God? Are you grateful to God for the partnerships that you have? Are you grateful to God for the friendships that you have? 
Do you invest time in cultivating those friendships with other Christians? Not just here in this church, that's important, but it's also important to do that outside here too. When was the last time you picked up the phone and checked in on a good Christian friend? Or do you tend to avoid Christians outside of church? Do you rather spend time with with non-Christians? Maybe people who are a little bit more like me. People who get me a little bit more. People who like the same jokes as I do. Or do you devote yourself to spending time with God's people? <coughs> Are you thankful to God when he presents you with an opportunity to support other gospel workers? This is, this is all that partnership is. This is all that fellowship is. Are you spending time thanking God when he gives you an opportunity to sacrifice some of your own personal time to serve within the local church? You see, our partnerships and Christian relationships should be totally gospel-centred. And we should spend much time thanking God for them. But not only that, but what, does, uh, but what does Paul do for every gospel partnership that he's involved in? What does he do for every partnership he, he is involved in? Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine. He prays. And so that's why I want you to notice, uh, secondly, that this is a prayerful partnership. This is a prayerful partnership not only does he say that he prays for the philippian church and all those that he partners with in the gospel but how does he pray verse four again he prays with joy you see prayer ought to be a joy for the christian it's not something that we go into unwillingly it's not something we sort of do reluctantly it's not something we do without any zeal it's certainly not something we do just because we think it's the right thing we do it with joy and i want you to hold on to those thoughts about prayer because we're going to come back to them towards the end of the sermon and i say that to encourage you because now you know when we start talking about prayer again we're nearly at the end um but it's important to remember that we pray with joy but then we see how how Uh, one other way that Paul describes the partnership that he has with the Philippian church. He highlights how it's an enduring partnership. It's an enduring partnership. Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day until now. From uh, the moment that Paul set out as an evangelist, he had partnered with the Philippian church. They were with him. They were supporting him. They were lifting him up. They were praying for him. Gospel churches always partner with others. We partner with other missionaries. We partner with other parachurch ministries. We partner with other good churches. Good churches, meaning gospel preaching churches. Churches where Jesus is at the very centre of all they do. Where Jesus is the true affection of the church. Where he is the one who leads them. Where he is the one who guides them. And let's just be very clear. We don't touch ecumenism. We don't go into interfaith activities. We don't have fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church because as Paul goes on to at great length later on in the letter, he explains how they need to and we need to discern the good from the bad. We need to work out what is good and what is pleasing to God and what is honouring to God and what is not. But it is still important that we partner with good gospel-centred organisations and churches. 
Can I ask you this morning, how intentionally are, how intentionally are you doing that? How many missionaries and ministries do you find yourself praying for? Maybe it's the case this, this morning that God has put a particular line of mission on your heart. How are you responding to that? Are you joyfully responding by supporting and praying? How many are there that, that you know that you could be supporting? There's plenty of opportunities here in this church to hear about different organisations that you could be praying for and thinking about serving and supporting in other practical ways. You see, gospel-minded individuals and individuals who have drawn close to their God and who are truly grateful for what he has done in Christ love to partner with others in the gospel. Are you doing that? How do you view your service to God? How do you view the sacrifices that you have to make to God? Do you find yourself serving God grudgingly? Annoyed with yourself for volunteering for something in the first place and really annoyed with yourself that you couldn't come up with a better excuse? Or is your approach to service in the church one of, well, I suppose I'll do it this time, but I really hope no one asks me to do it again? There's a, a comedian and a Christian called Milton Jones, who some of you will know, and he says that some people see the church as a giant helicopter. They love to look at it from afar, but they don't want to get too close in case they'd end up getting sucked into the rotors. And it perhaps is the case, maybe, that you've been attending a church for a little while. But in terms of service, you're not doing very much at all. Can I ask you that if that is you this morning, how do you actually view the church? What's your opinion of the church? Do you see it as a place where you can plug yourself in and get as much out of it as possible? Or is it a place where you get yourself involved and play a role in the advancement of the gospel? To slightly tweak a famous phrase, we ought to think a lot less about what the church can do for us and a whole lot more about what we can do for God in the church. Serving him, worshipping him, lifting his name up, serving others, helping others and of course benefiting from the ministry of the church too. And you see, this is why so-called church hopping is not a good idea. People who seem to jump from church to church on an almost weekly basis while never committing themselves to one local fellowship or one particular body of believers. And these people are putting themselves in very, very dangerous ground. I don't know of any mature Christians, any mature servants of God who have this sort of uh, consumerist approach to church. A mature Christian gets themselves involved in the local church, prays for it, serves within it, sits under its discipline and its teaching. And it is important for us to remember that this service for God will look wildly different depending on who you are and what stage of life you are at. It might be the case that uh, uh, you're not able to move around so much. And so the way you serve God is by humbly receiving service from others and letting other people serve you. But what is always important to remember is our attitude. Even when we cannot be there, are you longing to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it the case, uh, as, as Paul uh, says uh, in verse 7, it is right for me to think this of all of you because I have you in my heart. 
Is that how you think of the church? They are constantly in your heart, your Christian friends. They are constantly in your heart. The people in your church, they are constantly in your heart. And then in this church, in this fellowship, in this community of believers, you focus on continuing to grow in your faith and walk with the Lord. And so that is why I want you to notice, secondly, perseverance. One of the most wonderful doctrines I think there is in the Bible. Look again at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now this teaching of perseverance has often come under attack. There are some who would suggest that while this is a true and biblical doctrine, we perhaps shouldn't emphasise it too much as there is a danger that people might take a laid back attitude to their walk with God. People might stop taking their Christianity too seriously if they're reminded a little bit too much of their eternal security. But that will only happen if they are not truly born again. And so let us be clear this morning. If you are using the Bible's teaching on perseverance, if you are using the Bible's teaching on eternal security as an excuse or a license to sin, then you have woefully mistaken what it means to be a Christian. Maybe it's your gambling habit. Maybe it's your drinking addiction. Maybe it's your hateful and jealous thoughts and eating you up inside. Maybe it's that lust that you can't get away from. Uh, maybe it's those, those, those videos that you watch. Whatever it is, you cannot use your security as a Christian and the promise of perseverance as a license to continue doing these things. And now the good news is that the true Christian knows that their security, while never dependent on their works, is evidenced by a transformed heart. It's really important that we get to that. that the true Christian knows that their eternal security is never dependent on the things they do. It is never dependent on their works, but it is evidenced by a transformed heart. A fresh longing and desire for Christ and for his glory and a fresh and holy desire to be free from all sin. That's the simple difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Sin will still get us either way. But the, 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 the non-Christian runs towards it, seeks it out, tries to find it. The Christian runs away from sin, hates sin. And that is what it means to persevere. It is a continuous longing for holiness. A continuous longing for Christ and his glory. And yes, then it is true that you will persevere. Now there are others who deny this teaching's validity at all. And they suggest that it is actually entirely possible for Christians to lose their salvation altogether. But we do not and cannot hold to this view. To subscribe to this way of thinking would be to massively misunderstand the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and completely underestimate our own sinfulness and our constant need for the grace of God. You see, without the grace of God, it's very simple, you would fail. Without the grace of God, you would stop becoming a Christian. 
without his constant care and protection of you, without him leading you and protecting you and guiding you, even when you're going against his will, there's no question you'd lose your salvation. But praise God, as Paul says in Galatians 2, we do not nullify, we do not set aside the grace of God because he saved you, he rescued you, and now guarantees, more than that, he promises to keep you to strengthen you, to uplift you. The work that he began, he will bring to perfect completion, verse 6. And this is a God who promises, when he promises to do something, he doesn't just do it, he does it perfectly. And Christian, what glorious rest that you can find in this. Are you unsatisfied with where your life is this morning? Maybe you've come to realise that your walk with God is not where it should be. Maybe you're constantly beating yourself up because you know how weak you are and you don't think you can get anywhere. Maybe that you know there is an area of your life or a few areas of your life where you're not following God as you should be. Perhaps you've reached the point of despair at a certain sin in your life that you feel like you can't get away from. Listen to our text. He who began a good work in you will finish it perfectly. Maybe you're feeling lost this morning. Maybe it's the case that as we approach the end of a year, you're looking back on it with disappointment, with regret. Maybe you're even surveying your entire life up to this point and you're feeling pretty gloomy. You've not achieved all the things you hoped you would. You're not doing as well as you perhaps would like in your work. You're not the most popular or most well-liked person in your friendship group. And even though you have lived a fairly faithful life as far as being a Christian is concerned, you see other people streaks ahead of you. And now perhaps you're completely at the end of yourself. Why is it that so many Christians are tired? Why is it that so many Christians are exhausted, weary, burnt out, frankly miserable? Often because we have failed to grasp verse 6. That we are to be confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Will finish it. Listen to me this morning if you are a Christian. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for 60 years or 6 weeks. If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ has got you. And he's not letting go. Whether you like it or not. Because if you're truly a Christian, if you're truly born again, how you feel doesn't matter. There'll be times when you really don't feel like a Christian. There'll be times where you'll feel like a miserable wretch. There'll be times where you get out of bed in the morning, you're late for work. Uh, but by the, time you've, uh, by the time you've eventually rolled out of bed, it's 10 o'clock and uh, you've not prayed, you've not read your Bible. I'm a, just a terrible, miserable sinner who can't do anything right. Jesus Christ has got you. And one thing that really matters, and it's a simple fact, is that he has saved you and he promises to keep you to the very end. Now, your faith may seem small at times. You might not totally trust God at times. You may have even the greatest doubts you can think. You may even question whether God's even real. Satan might come to accuse you and attack you and remind you of all your guilt and all of your shame. And in these moments of trial, you can confidently look at your own faith struggles directly. 
You can confidently look at Satan in the eyes. You can confidently look at sin and hell in its face and say, my Jesus has saved me and promises to keep me. Why did God save you? Why did God save someone as dreadful and as sinful as me? It's exactly the same reason why he keeps you. It's to show all of heaven and all of creation just how gloriously good he is. By continuing to keep you, by continuing to provide for your every need, Jesus Christ is declaring to all of creation that he really, really loves you. Oh, how wonderful this love is. Oh, how precious it is. The goodness of Jesus is something that you can never fully understand and never fully get your head around. It's something that you can never properly preach about because it is so vast. It is so wonderful. The love of God has been set upon you. This is not like one of these weird sort of uh, fairy tale romantic loves that we think of. This is a love where he saw you in your ugliness, saw you in your miserable dying state. And he said, I want him. I want her. And to that we can simply say with Paul, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Would you come to this saviour this morning? Would you come and find in him every need truly satisfied? Would you come and find in him that there is a love beyond all compare? Would you find in him that there is a truth and a delight and a joy and a peace that you can never know in the world? Would you come and find in him such a strength and such a delight that you would say, I'd rather weep in his presence than laugh in anyone else's? Would you have such a confidence in the love of God, a confidence that you see going far beyond yourself? A confidence that you see going to your Christian friends, your family members, those who perhaps you know are not as spiritually mature as they should be. Those people who maybe frustrate you because you know they're a Christian, but they never seem to advance in their faith. Is your mindset for them the same as the mindset of the Apostle Paul? Knowing that the God who started a good work in them will complete it. And he, he just continues to have those people in his heart you see how he, he sort of expresses how much these christian people are in his heart in, in verse 7 but you also see it as in verse 8 for god is my witness how greatly i long for you with all the affection of christ jesus maybe it's those people that you don't get to see as often uh, as you would like how you long to see them how long how much you long to be with them this is paul essentially saying to them i miss you i miss you and because we have this wonderful fellowship, because we share in this wonderful grace of God, because we are partakers in his grace, as we see here in verse 7, we are able to encourage one another. We're able to be with one another, even when we are afar. We're able to, to delight in the wonder of what it is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Is that your longing? Is that your longing not just to be in heaven? I think we, we often say that, but it is it your longing to be with other Christians? 
Is it your longing to spend time surrounded uh, with other Christians, praying with other Christians? I can t- say this honestly, uh, it's one of the greatest joys to spend time praying with God's people. If you're not going to the prayer meeting already, please go. It'll be such an encouragement to the people around you. It'll be such an encouragement uh, uh, to, to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And you'll be encouraged also by praying with God's people. When you meet with your Christian friends, please pray with them. Please pray with them. Don't just laugh and joke with them, although that's good. Pray with them. Take a time at the end of the day, maybe, to say, right, we're going to, we're going to pray now. We're going to spend time in God's presence As he says in verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So let's notice, lastly, Paul's prayers. Verse 9 here, we see Paul expressing to his readers how much he is praying for them. And you don't have to spend much time in any of Paul's letters, really, to realise that here is a man who loved to pray. And that, if anything, is the greatest mark on any truly godly woman or godly man. Psalm 32, verse 6 says, For everyone that is godly shall pray. Jesus' expectation is that you, Christian, would become a man or a woman of prayer. And let me tell you, In prayer, you will see things that you would otherwise not see. You will have clarity when everything around you is unclear. You will know boldness and strength that you never had before. And dare I say it, you will experience the presence of God like you would never, ever have otherwise seen. So many of us have got time for Netflix. So many of us have got time for for computer games. So many of us have got time for doing our different recreational activities. But no time for God. No time for the one who says, come. Do you see why Paul is so keen, so desperate to tell everyone he writes to just how much he is praying? He's setting an example to them. It is good to pray, it is right to pray, and it is one of the chief ways in which God reveals himself to his people and fills their heart with joy. Look at how he puts it again in verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine making request for you, all with joy. Paul is again demonstrating that God fills his people in a special way in prayer. Even when everything in your life is going wrong, there is a glorious peace that can be found in his presence. There is a wonderful tranquility that can be found in shutting the door behind you and falling on your face in the presence of this almighty God who wants you there and loves to see you there and doesn't just do it because he wants to see you there for for some uh, strange reason. He wants to answer your prayers. Prayer is not just bullying God into doing things he doesn't want to do. He loves to answer your prayers. He loves to hear you. He loves to hear you spending time with him. Why is prayer such a joy? Because he's there and he is with us. So Paul encourages his readers with his prayers. What's he specifically praying for here? Verse 9, that their love may abound. Still more and more, that they may grow in love and knowledge and discernment. That the church may love one another the church ought to be a place of love but it isn't always is it 
So often you'll hear non-Christians talk about the church in ways that perhaps you don't recognise. They refer to it as a place of judgment. They refer to it as a place full of self-righteous people, a place full of hatred and bile. While we might be quite quick to defend ourselves, it's sometimes true. Sometimes the church does lack love and kindness and compassion. This is shown in cliques forming or bullying or people who who perhaps aren't as uh, socially able uh, not getting involved. How does a church avoid this? How does a church fix this? By praying and praying exactly what Paul is praying, that love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of discernment. That the church would know God. You see, uh, we've mentioned already how often it's the case that we don't feel like Christians. I tell you what, if you, uh, if, if you sort of surveyed the life of perhaps some of the most godly people, there were times when they saw their brokenness and they could not see how God would ever save them. And that is why it is so important that we pray in verse 9 that we should abound in love and knowledge of God. The more you understand him, the more you understand his character, the more you understand how he works in your life then the more confident you will become as a Christian. The more you know him, the more you understand what he says is true, then you will become more confident in in what his word says. That next time when you wake up and you think, what a wretch I am, you can say, no, I know my Christ is mine. And all mine is his, and all his is mine. That glorious union, that glorious wedding uh, between us and the Lamb. And when a church knows more and more about God, when a church has a hunger for theology, when a church has a hunger for the word of God, it becomes more biblical and more Christ-centered and more intentional about growing in its collective knowledge of God and sharing that knowledge of him with the world. But we shouldn't stop there. We shouldn't stop at at just our our, our times in the church, constantly doing this on our own, growing in our own personal love for God, growing in our own personal insight in, in his word. So that, verse 10, we may approve the things that are excellent. You see, so often we get distracted by good things. So often the devil doesn't distract us with sinful things but he'll distract us with good things right things things that we know are given to us by god but we just put them in the wrong place we forget the excellent things we forget to see the most excellent things and so let us remember that that as we pray that we may grow in our knowledge and discernment so that we may see the excellent things and then we see that you may approve Uh, the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of christ and this kind of links really to what paul is saying there in verse 9 about growing in discernment he's encouraging them to be a discerning bunch of people he tells them this throughout the letter discern what is right discern what is good what is true and we should be very careful therefore what we listen to and what we fill our minds with and that's what he's telling the philippian church is what he's telling us we should be very careful what we listen to, whether it's secular music. There's some good stuff, there's some bad stuff, but there's also some, some pretty terrible Christian music out there as well that won't encourage you, that won't help you. It's the same with Bible teaching. 
Fill yourself with the good stuff. You know, the internet can be a great resource. YouTube can be a great resource. But there are many people not connected to any local church who can very easily lead people astray. So be careful what Bible teaching you digest. Be careful what you put into your mind. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. That you may be sincere, verse 10, and without offence till the day of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is building for himself a perfect and holy bride in his church. And he's getting them, he's getting us ready for a wedding day. The day of Christ. This will be the day where every tear is wiped away. This will be the day where every longing will be truly satisfied. This will be the day where Christ Jesus doesn't this time come as a little baby in a manger. He will come as the glorious king, claiming all that is his and taking it to be with him. But he'll also come in judgment, a fearful day, a terrifying day. Are you ready for that day? Are you continuing in your faith? Are you continuing to grow? Are you confident and growing in confidence each day that he who begun a great and gloriously good work in you is bringing it to completion? You see, many people will tell you that you only have one life and you should live it to the full and do everything that the world offers and take every opportunity and never waste a second of your life because you've only got one life. And that's very true to some extent, isn't it? But this life is not all there is. For everyone will go somewhere when they die. This life is simply a waiting room, a dressing room for eternity. And for Christians, there is something so much better awaiting us. There is the glory. There is the wondrous lamb on his throne who will greet us and, and say, welcome home, you good and faithful servant. Eye has not seen nor has ear heard. The things God has prepared for those who love him. Do you love him? Notice how the Bible never says, do you love him perfectly? Because he knows that would be impossible for us. Do you love him? There's only one man who's ever loved God perfectly. And it's the man who came as a baby. Who humbled himself. By taking on our flesh. And it's the same man who hanging on that cross set his love upon you. And gave his life for you. Who now somehow, though we put him there, delights in you. Who now fills you with the fruit of righteousness. And just as we sung this morning, we can stand before him. We can stand before God the Father because of him. Saying no condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine he clothes you with his own righteousness he fills you with his fruit of righteousness look at that at verse 11 we are filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ these are not things that we do these are things he gives us 
He clothes us with these wonderful fruits of righteousness, which sustain us, which keep us, which continues to assure you that he will finish the work he started in you and prepare you for his day to the glory and praise of God. Verse 11. Do you see how Paul finishes off our text in this small but very significant doxology? To the glory and praise of God. The ultimate purpose of all of this. The ultimate purpose of your suffering. The ultimate purpose of your joy. The ultimate purpose of you being here this morning. Is to bring Christ glory. Because he totally deserves it. He is the only one who has any right to pursue his own glory. He is the only one who will take all of the glory. He started doing that in his first advent when the glorious newborn king is born in Bethlehem by living a perfect life and showing us the way to the Father by dying on a cross. Don't think that he wasn't taking glory there when he was lifted up. That was one of his most glorious moments. And when he comes back, he'll rightly claim all that is his own. And then even though I don't understand it, he'll claim me. And he'll claim you if you are a Christian. And he'll take us home. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you how wondrous it is that we somehow are your people. We somehow are uh, redeemed by you. And now you are continuing that great work of salvation you started in us. Lord, we pray you would encourage us by this. Would it, as the days go by, as we get older and more mature in our faith, Lord, we pray. Uh, that we would become more confident of this wonderful truth that he who began a good work in us will 